Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam, and I'm your host, Tariq El Amin. Now, for those of you who are new to Radio Islam, welcome. We are a live call in talk show broadcasting from Chicago on WCEV 1450 AM, and we reach the world by streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. Now, remember, you can also listen to us on the TuneIn app at WCEV. If you haven't already done so, keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. Uh, if you have a comment or a question you'd like to pose throughout the course of tonight's discussion, feel free to give us a call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. And you can listen to the podcast of all of our episodes wherever you get your podcast. Tune in, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play. You'll find us at the same username once again, at Radio Islam USA. At Radio Islam USA. All right, we have gotten the small stuff out of the way. Let's get into tonight's discussion. Tonight we're talking with Dr. Alia. Amar. Uh, Dr. Alia received her PhD in clinical psychology from Loyola University, Chicago in 2003. Uh, she's been involved in research exploring the effects of traumatic experiences upon the cognition and psychological well-being of various populations, including adolescents, substance abusers, and survivors of electrical injury. We're going to have questions about that. Uh, Dr. Amar is the CEO Director of Neuropsychology for Midwest Consultants for Cognitive Medicine, a private practice established to provide neuropsychological assessment and psychotherapy to clients in Lake County, Illinois. Uh, as part of the extension of her professional endeavors and interest in social justice, Dr. Omar proudly participates in the Compassionate Care Network to provide free access to health care to uninsured Muslims, immigrants, and other underserved individuals. She also serves as a board member for two Chicago area Masajid and Muslim Democrats. So that is quite a bit. And for you all, uh, Raider Islam family, I want you to know that that is just an excerpt, right? That is by no means <laughs> the full bio for Dr. Alia. But um, needless to say, though, uh, just what we read uh, is extremely impressive, and there's some questions that come up with that. So. Uh, first, we want to ask, what is neuropsychology? Uh, well, thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about neuropsychology. I mean, the, the entire path um, has just been a blessing. So mm -hmm. I'm grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for providing me with so many opportunities. And uh, one of them professionally has been to be a brain specialist. Um, so one way that I've been described as, uh, or one way our field is sometimes described, is that we're the human equivalents of MRIs. So uh, we do functional brain assessment in people with known or suspected injuries to the brain or any bodily system that affects the brain. Um, and in that sense, what we do is look at functions such as attention, language skills, hand-eye coordination, problem-solving, memory, um, judgment. And then we look also um, not just at the biological side, but at the psychological side. So is your mood 
uh, interfering with your memory versus is there a problem with your hippocampus that's interfering with your memory. Um, And so um, neuropsychologists are cross-trained in neurology, psychiatry, and psychology so that we can explore those questions differently uh, than some of the other professions. Wow. Wow. And you know what? And I was just so excited to jump right into our conversation. I did not give you a welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So assalamu alaikum. And thank you for, for taking the time to be here. And Jazakallah Khair for having me. It's always a pleasure to be a Radio Islam. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So let me ask, um, so with that, uh, with that understanding, and of course uh, for us, for us laypersons, that gives us a, a, a bit of a window for something that has obviously taken you uh, many years um, uh, to, to master. It takes quite a bit of time, and um, there are very few Muslims engaged in neuropsychology. Um, I was the first Muslim neuropsychologist, as far as we understand, in the United States of America. Um, And uh, the second uh, came very closely behind me and far outshines me in terms of his uh, professional accomplishments. So Dr. Omar Mahmoud, who's currently practicing in Qatar, um, is an excellent uh, child neuropsychologist and researcher. Um, Mm. And so I I think the two of us were holding it down for a while, but I believe we've been joined by other Muslim colleagues. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. (laughs) And the biggest thing now is to try to make sure that we can develop some of the tests and measures so that they are culturally and linguistically relevant, especially uh, within the Arab population, where we have large swaths of individuals who are exposed to either trauma or blast effects or... Um, other conditions, including aging. Uh, in the Michigan area, we have a large population of, of aging Arabs. Mm-hmm. And because of some of the language barriers, they aren't able to avail themselves of the service, but also because we haven't uh, clearly been able to go out and explain to the community what this is and why it would be important. So, you know, whether it's for people who suspect that they might have a child with autism or individuals who have attention deficits or those who may be wondering if their head injury has had a full recovery um, or even those who are caring for a loved one that they believe has dementia. Um, There's a full spectrum uh, throughout the lifespan that neuropsychologists can address and part of what we do in terms of diagnosing Um, is to first make sure that we know what is going wrong, um, but we also look for balances. So you may not be able to um, remember things, but it may not be a memory problem. It could be an attention problem. So then we uh, put you with the correct therapist so that you can work on your attention problem, and we recommend medications. We don't actually prescribe, most of us. Um, We recommend medications uh, to your doctor that may be helpful for dealing with your attention problem, and that can save you a great deal of time and effort um, because you didn't have to go through a lot of training. People like to go online and diagnose themselves, and <laughs> they've got a cousin, sister's friend who used to know someone who right. <laughs> said that if you eat this, your memory will be better. And we can save you a lot of time uh, by correctly diagnosing and then correctly planning out your treatment with other professionals. So <clears throat> I, for one, have not really heard a lot about neuropsychology. Mm-hmm. Is uh, Are there neuropsychologists on, on staff at, at every hospital or...? No, we are um, unfortunately probably understaffed at most hospitals. Um, We have about 
Oh, I would say maybe 10,000 uh, neuropsychologists available nationally. Um, and I hope I'm not underestimating that number. It changes from time to time, but I think that um, within some of our larger societies that that reflects the membership numbers um, pretty accurately, um, or at least the active membership. It's like a, not even, a, well, I don't, I don't want to mess up with my math, but I was looking at some stats um, for uh, research on, uh, recently, and this was 2013 numbers. Mm-hmm. And it had the number of physicians in the U.S. at uh, a little bit, little bit over a million. Mm-hmm. I think it was like 1.3 or something like right. that. So to hear 10,000. Yeah, we're that, yeah, wow. and so there's a lot of work for um, a few people. We tend to be clustered in metropolitan areas. We tend to be at larger hospitals or in private practice. Um, there's a good mixture there, um, especially those of us who are in private practice in suburban areas and rural areas are treating underserved populations, and and that's defined very differently when underserved means there's no doctor in the area versus mm. um, being used as a demographic euphemism right yeah. right so dr alia tell, tell us this what is the um one of the things that i read in your bio was the uh survivors of electrical injury mm-hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about how, how that comes into play with neuropsychology so um i was training at the university of chicago um i, I got my clinical phd at loyola university but loyola didn't have a neuropsychology program at the time mm-hmm. and i was very blessed one of my mentors uh kind of recognized that i was interested in the types of things that neuropsychologists were interested in and the standard practice, the traditional practice of clinical psychology um, was something that I kind of didn't resonate with as much. I wanted to try something else. I was I was much more biologically driven. Mm-hmm. And so she recommended that I go over to the University of Chicago. Um, I was blessed and um, I, I really have to give credit to amazing mentors who, as we later talk about, are interfaith connections and our cross-cultural collaborations. Um, My earliest mentors were Jewish and Christian white males who, you know, a thousand people might have said, oh, no, you know, don't try that. You know, the invisible they don't want you to do X, Y, and Z. And they helped me um, to enter this field. And so um, in terms of uh, doing that type of uh, training it led to my work with the electrical injury research team because they had already established the research project, um, but they needed a new they needed a new clinician, um, and they also needed a new researcher to come in. You want to retake that? Okay. So um, I became the research coordinator for the project, and it was it was pretty fascinating. Um, the first thing is we had to split off two different types of electrical contact. Um, people with lightning strikes were messing up our data. <laughs> really? Yeah. We had a large enough section that um, that became a separate study. But we, we, what we were really looking at was you have large numbers of um, workers, you know, like the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Uh, yes. Their union worked with us very closely, and we were really grateful for that. But you had a lot of workers in construction, um, in welding, and electrical work, and sometimes these guys would get injured. They take high voltage injuries, and right. um, 
months later, they might show up and complain about all these emerging problems. Their, their muscles didn't seem to be working as well. They were developing a tremor. They couldn't access their words as easily. Their memory was bad. And the common idea at the time was that they were faking. You know, really? yeah, yeah. Um, there was money to be made in uh, making these types of claims because then you could go on disability and you didn't have to work. Right. Um, I know from my contact with electricians, they don't want to let go of their of their field. They're highly trained, they're skilled, and they're making great money. So they're actually not motivated to um, malinger an illness in the same way that people thought. Um, we began to look at why it was that there were patterns emerging over time of, you know, increasing changes, uh, cognitive changes, the signal that maybe something was going differently than we expected within the brain. And we also needed to know whether people who had electrical burns were functioning differently from people who didn't. Um, the long story short is that we pretty much remapped uh, what is known about the effects of electricity within the body um, and the cascade that it can begin if, if individuals are um, exposed to high-voltage electrical injuries. And so now it's known that many of those individuals will go on to develop problems with their memory and their attention, and um, our research can be used to substantiate that when needed in court or with uh, unions or bosses or anyone. And so a group of people who, I'd say 25 to 30 years ago, were being looked at as, as if they really weren't trying are now being recognized as patients who need care and treatment um, and may need disability. Has that also changed the protocol, the way that electrical um, victims of electrical shock are, are treated, the way they're, they're, they're triaged and the way they're received uh, when they come into hospitals? Some of the changes um, that have been included is that we now recognize that they are more in need of things like speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, not just in the acute phase. The interesting right. thing about electrical injury is that over time you can see some patterns of worsening and they can be very unpredictable. So individuals who have had electrical injuries, especially high voltage electrical injuries, should be seen, you know, annually if possible. Um, there's no strict guideline around it, but annually if possible or when new symptoms begin to emerge. Um, and those symptoms should be taken seriously unless there's some additional information that would indicate why they should not. So it's almost like we went from saying, oh, you're guilty to saying, oh, you're innocent until proven guilty. Um, right. And, and I kind of hate to frame it in that way, but it's, it's the <laughs> fastest way I could think of it. But we were looking at people and we were saying no. And now we're looking at people and we're saying, we're saying we need to believe you about your symptoms and follow that up clinically in a really um, Cons uh, in, in a manner that's really consistent with standard medical practice as opposed to ignoring the s symptoms until they worsen. Um, so getting those therapies in uh, very quickly is important. 
looking at whether or not people should be taking medication to enhance their memory performance or give them a bit more neuroprotection. Um, that's something that's important. And the research is continuing. I'm not an active part of it anymore, um, but I'm a proud um, pioneer for that type of, of research. You laid some of the foundation down. I laid some of the foundation, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think the central part for me was also um, my contribution was to combine that with my interest in post-traumatic stress disorders. And so, um, you know, if if you took a high-voltage electrical injury, I mean, these things are not pretty. They're, they're scary. A lot of people have cardiac events. Um, these are life-threatening events. And so um, the question was, do electrical injury survivors uh, develop PTSD at higher rates um, than individuals who experience other types of injury? And also, what is the cognitive manifestation of PTSD, and can you differentiate that based on the electrical injury, the PTSD, or the combination of the both? And so that was kind of central to my early research. Uh, were your findings uh, in affirmative? Uh, did, did Was there evidence of higher instances of PTSD for electrical so, um, um, my, survivors? So my research at the time was the... Um, first international presentation on that topic in particular because we have very positive uh, findings. We detected for the very first time ever that um, PTSD can be associated at higher rates um, with electrical injury than we would expect um, for people who hadn't been injured and for people who had other forms of injury. We also established that memory and attention problems are some of the hallmarks of that. And although uh, my findings weren't, I believe, as strong in terms of executive functioning, which means um, sort of the integrated problem-solving and higher-order thinking aspects, um, later researchers have gone on to provide much more consistent findings in that regard. So, So we earmarked three areas where people might have problems. And, and when you earmark those areas, just like in anything else with neuropsychology, what you have to come back to at the end of the day is how does this impact a person in their real life? Um, right. So if you're having these problems, um, what is it that you need support for? How do we reroute some of these things? How do we get you to function better? And, and that's the part where we make a difference in people's real day-to-day existences. All right. Um, Radio Islam family, if you are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Alia Amar. She is the CEO and director of neuropsychology for Midwest Consultants for Cognitive Medicine, uh, which is a private practice established to provide neuropsychological assessment and psychotherapy to clients in Lake County, Illinois. Now, uh, since we mentioned it, you said there are about 10,000 neuropsychologists that are serving the U.S. population right now. I think. Don't keep me too well, too yeah, tight yeah. to the number, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, and once again, I'm going to contrast just giving an estimate to say that there are over a million um, physicians, uh, and I know that, and I was looking at there two different, one organization looks at everybody that's, that practices internal medicine as a physician, and there's another organization that says that basically anyone who is a, um, a doctor, quote mm-hmm. unquote, is a physician. So using that definition, that there are over a million, mm-hmm. uh, so that 10,000, whatever, you know, if it's mm-hmm. 11 or whatever, it's still a really small number. What do you say to uh, to aspiring uh, uh, to an aspiring neuropsychologist or somebody who may not, who are just now being uh, introduced this to this idea? 
what is your advice to, to folks who, are, who may be looking to go down that path? So I think my first bit of advice is to look very carefully at your mentors and at the programs that you're involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, because of how central some of our work can be towards the decision-making processes of other doctors. Um, The margin of error needs to stay very low. You need to know what you're doing. Um, One of the things that I currently do in the Middle East is I work with people to try to make sure that the quality um, is, is there. And that begins for new clinicians with making sure that your education is at the highest level of standard. Um, So the Houston Conference standard um, is the model that predominates within North America um, to ensure that you have, uh, you know, an excellent clinical background, that you have excellent clinical training. Um, Board certification in neuropsychology is something that I strongly recommend. Um, It's not required, but it is highly desirable, and it helps to to do that. Um, There are some programs out now where it's sort of the buzzword that, you know, um, oh, we can train 300 neuropsychologists per class. Really? Um, Because at some of the best places, you probably won't see more than 10 at a time. Wow. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of hands-on mentorship. It's a very high investment for the universities and for the medical centers um, to put into uh, the development of us as specialists and for us to then be able to go out and, and practice competently and also mentor competently. Um, so the very first thing is... Um, make sure that your program actually is a top program. The top programs are primarily um, PhD programs that are connected to major hospitals um, where you're going to get your training at major hospitals, major universities, um, small class sizes, mentors who are well-known, well-published, um, and have a, a excellent track record. Um, the in terms of their mentorship. The other thing that I would say is you have to make excellence your standard. Um, you know, I, I say to those that I work with, you know, whether it's my employees or my students, I always say excellence is my standard. Um, so if you're having an average day with me, it needs to be 150%. Um, 100 is not going to be good enough. So if excellence is your standard, then you're always learning and studying again and you wake up in the morning to be honest feeling a little insecure Mm. because what you don't know is always going to be more than what you know Um, you're going to feel that way every day Um, it's a very wide world we have a limited capacity as human beings and so once you think you know everything realize that you know nothing and start all over again and that's the best way to keep sharp that is a really humbling. Um, <clears throat> that is a really humbling uh, viewpoint uh, mm-hmm. to take, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm and I'm sort of. No, I'm not surprised to hear you say that, mm-hmm. but I think I would be surprised uh, in general to hear something like that come uh, from a doctor, mm-hmm. only because doctors are stereotypically um, positioned as 
you know, this the person who has all the answers. Right. So that's so, so we have kind to, of refreshing. To, to I, yeah. I, I think that that's a, a perspective that we have to take internally. Now, if you actually um, know nothing, then for the love of God, don't practice. <laughs> you know, like read, 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 and read more. Um, and then go out and get trained. <laughs> and maybe consider whether this is not your forte. Um, but, the, but the feeling, you know, the... The mentors that I look up to most, um, Dr. Neil Pliskin, Dr. Joe Fink, um, the mentors that I really look up to most, their offices are filled with books. Their tables are filled with books. They're always reviewing literature. It's like every single day they're learning something, and yet they're the smartest, most educated people I know, um, and they're also always consulting with other doctors. And and it's the minute that you think you know everything that becomes a problem. And right. but you can't communicate uh, that feeling outwardly. Oh, I mean, no, that's right. that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. But it's but I think business. that it yeah. But it pushes you towards internal excellence. And at the end of the day, you know, um, there are disorders, for instance, like uh, Lewy body disease, a form of dementia which if misdiagnosed and if the psychotic symptoms are treated with traditional antipsychotics, that'll increase the mortality rate for those patients by up to 700%. So, wow. so yeah, on a That's good huge. day, someone walks into your office and they might have the wrong diagnosis and you might look and say, hey, wait, that's that's not the right diagnosis for this person. Um, And you might help them in a way that you didn't anticipate. Um, Being able to differentiate autism spectrum disorder from other neurodevelopmental illnesses can help direct treatment for a child in such a way that impacts their lives throughout their life. Um, And so when when you're able to do that you have to realize that the field is changing that knowledge is being acquired every day it's not that you don't know Mm. it's that you don't know what was published last night while you were sleeping and so when Mm. you wake up look for it you know and and see what's there so it puts you in a constant state of uh of discovery which feels a lot like faith to be honest um you know and and that's that's something that I think Muslims in particular can uh, be very attuned to. We have a tendency to stigmatize mental health, um, whether we say that people don't need psychologists because, you know, if you have taqwa, you don't need a psychologist. Well, mm, if good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided somebody to spend 22 years getting educated in a field in order to help you, is that not enough for you? You know, you. If, if something is here to help you, then why say, I reject that? So in the Quran, when it says, you know, how many favors of your Lord will you deny? Right. Why deny mental health treatment? Um, why stigmatize that in such a way that we make people feel ashamed of accessing something that Allah has blessed us to have? And if more Muslims began to get engaged in mental health treatment, um, in providing mental health services, and even going into fields like mine, then we have the ability to do something for ourselves that currently we predominantly seek elsewhere. Um, And when it comes to waking up in the morning and saying there's more to learn, well, 
we all wake up in the morning at Fudger and we're, we're asking God to show us and guide us along a path, bring us to what we need to know. Um, is that not the same type of search? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Radio Slam family, we're talking with Dr. Alia Amar. Uh, we're going to take a break, but before we take the break, I'm going to let you know what to expect when we get back. So we're going to get into some of the other uh, aspects of who you are, right? So we're going to talk about some of your uh, your civic engagement uh, and activism, uh, and just get get some of your ideas on the current current political landscape as well. Okay. So uh, Radio Islam family, you are listening to Radio Islam at WCV fourteen fifty AM. Uh, we are going to take, as I said, a short break, but we will be right back. <laughs> When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. It's 6.42 p.m. Time for Steve Plato and his son Dylan to do the dishes. They talk about everything from the yuckiness of girls to the awesomeness of his soccer team. Sometimes they don't talk at all. Then, the dreaded splash fight. It's dad o'clock, and it's the best time of the day. Because the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hi, my name is Stanley, and I've been arrested for stealing shoes. I didn't really steal them, but I've been sent to Camp Green Lake anyway. The worst punishment a kid could get. And at Camp Green Lake, we dig holes. Lots of holes. I've only been here a short time, but I think the camp director is up to something. I'm Stanley Yelnats, and I'm covering more than dirt at Camp Green Lake. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Holes by Lewis Sacker. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. How to be a great dad in 15 seconds. Bike ride, go fish, walk in the park, phone call, milkshake, play catch, picnic, fly a kite, tell jokes, laugh, talk, read a story, tell a story, bumper car, swing set, bowling, pillow fight, cut loose, stay tight. Because the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam right here at WCV 1450 AM. 
And we are streaming live at www.wcv1450.com. Remember to follow us, like our pages, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all at Radio Islam USA. And what's my last reminder for you? Just remember, you can always listen to our podcast the following day, uh, wherever you get your podcast at. Tune in, iTunes, Google Play, uh, SoundCloud, at Radio Islam USA. We are joined in studio today by Dr. Alia Amar. She uh, is, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, this is not hyperbole. She is a, she's, she's dynamic. What can I say? Uh, she is a CEO uh, and director of neuropsychology for Midwest Consultants uh, which for cognitive medicine. Uh, this is a private practice established to provide neuropsychological assessment and psychotherapy to clients in Lake County, Illinois. Um, now, we've been talking about uh, a lot of things that are related to neuropsychology, but we're going to take a moment and we're actually going to get into that, uh, the other aspect of who Dr. Alia is uh, as, a, as an activist, um, as a, uh, one who is civically engaged. I'm going rem- to read the last portion of her bio that I share with you at the outset of uh, tonight's program. And that's going to let you know where we're going. So it says, at a part, as a part of the extension of our professional endeavors and interests in social justice, Dr. Amar proudly participates in the Compassionate Care Network uh, to provide free access to health care to uninsured Muslims, immigrants, and other underserved individuals. She also serves as a board member for two Chicago area Masajid and Muslim Democrats. So that being said, where should we start? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Let's start with blessings. Oh, that's great. So, that's so great. it's a blessing to be in a country where you have the freedom of speech to say what needs to be said, to speak to power, and to do what needs to be done, to intervene on behalf of those who sometimes can't be their own personal activists. Mm-hmm. It's a blessing to be in a country where as a woman, um, my voice is welcomed and not silenced. Um, it's a blessing to be in this country as a black woman in defiance of an administration and sometimes a social movement that has very consistently for decades and even centuries sought to um, silence and oppress that aspect of my identity. So I think the very first thing that I start with is that these are blessings and that we can't as Muslims waste blessings. We can't as Muslims afford to waste blessings. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helps us when we help ourselves. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when we hear complacency or apathy, um, we hear complacency and apathy because those are different ways to recognize fear. Um, It's easier to say, I shouldn't engage in this activity. I I shouldn't protest loudly. Um, I shouldn't be on a board, for instance. Um, And I was on the board. I've recently um, left the the boards that I'm on as I explore other opportunities. Um, But it's a blessing to be on a board 
And yet there are people who will dispute that. You know, well, maybe you shouldn't be on a board. You know, maybe the brothers should be on the board. Yeah. Well, what happens when we tie one hand behind our, ba our back and try to get a job done? You know, more than 50% of our OMA is comprised of women. And when we silence those women, when we decide that only men can speak for those women, although they cannot live the experience of those women, then we are doing ourselves as Muslims a disservice by underutilizing the strength, the capabilities, and the intelligence of those women. We do the same thing as Muslims broadly in society mm -hmm. when we begin to say, well, we shouldn't participate in, for instance, uh, voting or elections because we don't have a khalifa in the United States and, or a caliphate in the United States and we don't have, we're not living in a Muslim society. Now, whether you immigrated to the United States um, by choice, um, whether your ancestors immigrated to the United States, not in terms of an immigration, but as a uh, part of the... Uh, process, the mental and physical process of slavery, or whether you were born here and those experiences have become more and more distant, your second or third generation, or you can't relate mentally to uh, the experiences of your ancestors through slavery or through Jim Crow. Um, no matter what that pathway is, to begin to say to yourself that I don't fit into this society because this society isn't what I want it to be yet. And when this society is what I want it to be, then I'll participate. This is foolishness mm. and this is fear. And, and we have to begin to very directly take that on because we no longer exist in a point of history where we can afford that type of ignorance. Right. Um, when we choose not to participate in the voting process, we are voting. We are simply voting for the people who are most against us and most against our beliefs and our uh, expressions of how to live. When, when you look at a candidate and you say, unless I agree with that candidate 100% on every single issue, I cannot vote for that candidate. That's ridiculous. Stop being afraid. You don't agree with your wife 100% of the time. You're going to leave her? You know? right, Unless right. dinner is absolutely perfect, I'm not going to eat it. Unless the children are astonishing, mm. I'm, I'm not going to parent them. You know, un Unless everything works for me in this society, I'm not going to participate in this society. Mm. You're not going to get a place that works for you 100% unless you are blessed with genital fertus. Mm. That's when you get to be to a place where everything works just as you wanted it to. Right. But that's not where Allah started you from. So why did Allah bring you to this particular point in time? He could have put you anywhere else in time. He could have put you on one of the Middle Passage ships. He could have put you in you know, um, pre-partition Pakistan or, or pre-partition India. He could have put you in the Qureshi society of the, of the Jahiliya. He could have put you in any of those circumstances. He put you here. Mm -hmm. So don't wake up in the morning and tell yourself why you can't. Wake up in the morning and ask why it was that the Lord of the worlds selected to put you in this place and time and whether you're doing enough for him in it.
Certainly not to be a bystander. No. <clears throat> and and not to be a bystander and not to be a naysayer. Um, mm-hmm. one, one of the most troubling things is that when we do have people who are empowered, who are going out there, who are trying to make change, to have people question their motivations, to have people attack them. You know, I look at my beautiful sister, and may Allah bless her, I look at my beautiful sister, Linda Sarsour, and how she's out there every day literally putting her life on the line for us as a community. Mm-hmm. And then I look at how many Muslims take the time out of their day to simply backbite and criticize her. If you're going to backbite and criticize her, hold that. She doesn't care. If she cared, she wouldn't be able to go out there and do what she's doing. So hold that to yourself. If you don't like what Linda's doing, get up and do something yourself. Maybe your approach is better. Maybe your approach is simply different. We need all hands on deck. So whatever it is that you do, bring it. Right. And and that can be the contribution. But if all that you do is sit back and criticize her, who are you to criticize her? You know, at least she gets up in the morning and she tries to make a better world for everyone. Right. Criticism criticism without a body of work um, or without taking into consideration the, the sacrifice and contributions that those who are actually working, you know, uh, are contributing. Right. Uh, so let me ask you this, because what you mentioned, you, you point out, Two things. Well, one is the the insular politics within the the Muslim community uh, as a whole. Yes. Um, but then also the the general idea, uh, I think, which which transcends just the the Muslim community, but the idea of having to be in complete a complete agreement with uh, with an agenda or with a politician. And with that, I would like to hear your your thoughts on, uh, particularly about the Democratic Party. Uh, right now, because we just came, we came through an election where a lot of people, uh, myself included, were not happy with the way the Democratic Party conducted themselves. Uh, the uh, the attention that uh, that Bernie Sanders received in comparison uh, to, to Hillary Clinton, and and a lot of people feel like we are where we are now as a as a kind of a, a result of people losing, maybe not necessarily losing faith, but really. Just kind of thumbing it, thumbing their nose at the Democratic Party. Um, what what do you what are your thoughts on, on that right now? So a problem that we have as Democrats is is that we fail to remain goal oriented. Um, you know, if if you go back to the philosopher Immanuel Kant, mm-hmm. Kant said that all behavior is goal oriented. So whatever it is that you are doing. Um, is really the thing that will tell you what you want it to do. And when Democrats fail to position themselves with a goal and say what we want to do is to make a more positive society, create a more stable middle class, um, increase jobs, meaningful jobs, um, so that we share wealth and distribute wealth better in this society. When we fail to do that, then we're easily scattered among ourselves, and and people become distracted. On the other hand, um, Republicans are so intensely goal-oriented. Their goals may not align with ours, but um, you got to admire how they never lose focus of the ball. We are now involved in the second civil rights movement in this country. A few years ago, I started saying we're on the precipice. We're no longer on the precipice. We're right in the midst. 
Why are we at a second civil rights movement? We're at a second civil rights movement because the people who disagreed with the first aligned behind a party and they pursued the singular goal of reversing those gains in society for 60 years. Mm -hmm. We can't stand together through an election cycle. (laughs) If Democrats began to take seriously our goals for society, we'll realize that the candidates that we desire will emerge because we will become them. If you don't like Hillary Clinton, fine. Don't like Hillary Clinton. I really think that we would have been better off with her than where we are today. There are people who are still debating that, and God love them, you know. (laughs) There's a shoe size that fits everyone. But, but, you know, when you look at the overall goal, are we going to be better off? Would we really have been better off? Um, But let's put Hillary Clinton aside. Hillary Clinton is one person. Um, she's not an entire movement. She's not the entire party. Was the Democratic Party making choices that perhaps we wish they had not? Yes. Do all political parties do that? Yes. Why do we know about the Democratic Party's decisions in this way? More than likely because the opposition wanted us to know that, because then we'll bicker about that, and 2018 is now here. And if we don't get our act together soon then we're beatable because we're still arguing over 2016. You, you mentioned the uh, the buy-in, the commitment that, uh, the Repu- that, that exists in the GOP, in the Republican Party, um, where they have committed themselves to, uh, they say that we will respond to the passage of the Civil Rights Bill by uh, and the uh, enfranchisement of, 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 of black people by going after entitlement programs, mm-hmm. by, uh, by, by whittling away at all of those, or whatever is perceived to be of, the, be of benefit to African Americans or minorities, communities of color. Um, or poor people, yeah, poor or people. Yeah. any form of marginalization. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but their commitment to that agenda is what has allowed them to continue to move forward and also allow folks who, uh, who were obvious that they stood up and said we are not for Trump who mm. questioned his mm. his um you know whether or not he would be uh you know you know viable as a candidate mm. but upon his election fell they, in line they step in line right? so yeah. on the other side of that do you looking at the democratic party those who um who who carry that torch do you think that the issue is that the agenda is not one that really uh, folks feel uh, resonates with them in a way where they, they can see b- the big picture um, or the things that are on the table. Mm-hmm. Do they mean enough for people to, to, to galvanize a, a crowd of folks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in similar to what's done under the uh, Republican banner? I think that's a false flag. I think that we're we are more sensitive, it seems, among the Democratic Party to suggestions either within the media or, you know, even within our own discussions about what we're dissatisfied with and how we're not united and how this isn't the perfect situation um, or who else we could have. Um, and once we began to be told that, well, you know, your candidate's not that great. Your can- I mean, we, we had someone who was so clearly flawed 
um, so clearly flawed that psychiatrists from Harvard came out and said, woohoo, red alert, mental illness, you know, <laughs> and, and yeah. yet we bickered about the most qualified woman to ever serve. The sitting president of the United States said this woman is more qualified than I was before my successful eight years as president and and got behind her. And we listened to just all the little subtle whispers. But I don't want to I don't want to point just to the presidency because the real problem that we have um, for Democrats, the real opportunities that we miss began at much, much, much simpler levels. We need to be running for every office that's out there. Um, We need to be targeting unopposed seats, whether it's on the school council board, whether it's an open judicial seat, whatever the opportunity is, we need to be targeting that. And our messaging within that needs to be consistent. We also need to stop being afraid of being labeled. You know, um, people say liberal if it's as if it's a bad thing you know mm. why is that a bad thing you know that that my mind can explore other possibilities and needs beyond my own that i have the freedom the liberalism within my own mind to conceptualize beyond my personal set of needs or the enrichment of a small portion of society. If I care about the man, the veteran who's sitting outside begging, and I ask myself, why did I send that man to war? Why did I take some mother's child and destroy his mind? Why did I give him a set of experiences that he remains locked into? And how does that contribute to him living on the street when he fought for me to live in my warm, comfortable house? When I stop and I think about that, and, mm-hmm. I, and I care about that man, even though I am not a veteran, you know, if that's what the heart of liberalism is, I'm in for that, you right. know. But when I look at that man and I sent him to war and then I underfunded him so much that if, if, you, if you remember it, um, everyone from celebrities to moms were trying to put together gear packs that we were sending to the troops. Yeah. And when they came back home, all of a sudden we were done with the yellow ribbons and the singing and the whole kumbaya moment. And we were right down to slashing veterans' budgets. And considering whether or not um, there was a problem, a real problem that we needed to address among veterans. Um, you know, if, if, if you're going to send your own child to war, then you're going to care about everything that happens. The party that tends to uh, be in power when we emerge into whatever is the newest set of wars tends to also be filled with people that don't send their children um, into the military. This is true. And so that personal connection is often lacking. And when that personal connection is lacking and you don't have liberalism of your mind, your mind is not free enough to see the needs of that individual, then there's nothing that your platform can offer him. And we can go away from veterans' issues and we can say the same thing about everything from LGBTQ issues, which mm-hmm. I know is not a, a popular topic among Muslims, mm-hmm. but... Get him stuck. Um, okay, 
sorry, <laughs> about LGBTQ issues. It may not be popular for Muslims to ally around that as an issue, mm-hmm. but let's not fool ourselves. We have members of our ummah who are struggling with those same issues, and can I care about my Muslim brother or my Muslim sister for whom that is an issue? Mm-hmm. Of course I can. Um, can I care about my Muslim brothers and sisters who struggle with mental illness or who struggle with poverty or who struggle with alienation, who struggle with institutional racism? Can I care about a Muslim brother or sister who is living under oppression? Can I join a movement, use my voice, do something to alleviate at some point that suffering? I can't do it for everybody and for every cause. None of us can. But there are more than one billion Muslims in this world. And if we stop teaching each other apathy, if we begin to build, to build coalitions with other groups and other organizations, if we don't say that you have to be Muslim for us to work with you, but we work as Rasulullah did with the society that he had, Sallallahu Alaihi if if we work with the society that we have in order to build the society that we desire, then we're doing each in our own small way, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah, sent us here to do. And one billion people waking up every morning saying that my faith says that I care about you when you're poor. And I, I can't go to sleep at night because whosoever feeds himself while his neighbor goes hungry is not from among us. Mm, if I care about your hunger and I want to alleviate that, if I recognize that your hunger is not just because physically you have not been satiated with proteins and amino acids that nourish your body, but that your soul has a hunger, and I can speak to you about that without proselytizing, if I can talk to you and you're a Buddhist, an atheist, a Christian, a Jew, and I see in you your common humanity, and I know that your soul made the same promise to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before we were placed in our bodies that my soul made, Mm -hmm. and even even if I have to go to that level to recognize your humanity, I can meet you there because your heart beats and you bleed and God placed us both here. And that's all I need to know to want a just society for you. I don't need you to take a shahada. I don't, I don't need you to come and pray with me. I don't need to know whether or not you've read Quran. I don't need to know whether my, my, African-American brothers and sisters in Islam are getting along at this moment with my Arab or Indian or any other, well, our Latino uh, population is very large as well, with any other group of Muslims. I don't need to know that. We can't afford to keep fighting the battles of the 1960s and 70s and 80s. We can't afford to be on the south side of Chicago angry with the Muslims on the north side of Chicago. Not when the President of the United States would like to ban us all. All of us. All of us. Yeah. And he doesn't care where you were from. I mean, he's he's starting with that. But if he had his way... Oh, everybody would be, yeah. Yeah. And he'd have a registry. Yeah. As, As soon as people who have described us as a cancer are able to take high government positions, you have to be a fool to think that silly little divisions like North and South matter. Do we have deeper problems? Are there problems within the Muslim Ummah? Do we look at each other differently on the basis of race and lie to each other and say there is no racism within Islam? Absolutely. 
do we sit next to a man, and even though we're supposed to all be equal as we join in prayer, do we sit next to a poor man and sort of scoot over just a little bit because, you know, he can't afford the same cologne that I can afford, and I don't know where he washed his clothes, and maybe he'll turn around and ask me for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do that. Um, do, do we look at a sister who's struggling to raise her children on her own because her Muslim husband was not standing up to his role as a husband and a father? And do we look at that woman and alienate her instead of bringing her in? You know, do we not invite certain people to our home because we're from this place or we're from that place? Do we look at each other as Panthans and Punjabis and Hyderabadis? Do we look at each other as Yemenis and uh, you know, Palestinians and Syrians and Jordanians? Do we break each other apart? Yeah. Yeah, we do. And that's well, a waste of time. And I think uh, the, the sometimes the best thing that you can have is a common uh, is, a, is a common enemy, uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to paint our president as an as an enemy, uh, but focus more more so on the policies uh, that he is trying to uh, to initiate. Right. I um, I don't think we should paint him as an enemy, but we must recognize that he's not our friend. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I just and I say that just to err on the side of not not being uh, in. in I'm not going to say inflammatory, but to keep our eye on on what matters, and it is the the policies. It is not the personality, but it's the policies that they that they push, uh, or that they allow uh, to to come about uh, to be promoted, uh, uh, you know, on their watch. So I know he has, you know, he has no no love for the Muslim community, um, but that possibly might be the impetus that might be the the platform that we need to get past some of those things that you, that you mentioned uh that we're all yeah usually most of us are, are aware of those things yeah. uh but we need a greater we need something greater to be able to push us to, to move past those 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 things that, that divide us uh needlessly so when we when we are susceptible to a virus and the body responds with a raging fever the white cells of your body and your complete immune system move and activate in order to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that we are a body. We call ourselves an Ummah, but we, we are a body in that sense. And we need to move to unite and, and address the underlying raging fever that's affecting our community. As always, our, uh, our hour goes by mm -hmm. tremendously fast. But, uh, Dr. Alia, I want to thank you for taking the time to come here uh, and share. Huh, we need to get you back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, Radio Islam family, I hope that you have enjoyed uh, this conversation uh, that we've had uh, with our dear sister, Dr. Alia Amar. Uh, we pray for her continued well-being and success. Um, and whenever you are back you uh, are most certainly welcome. Uh, we'd love to have you back in and talk to you some more. Thank you so much. May Allah continue to bless you and to bless all of the efforts of, of the things you're doing with Radio Islam. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. All right, folks. Tonight's show uh, has been brought to you, let's see, well, by our good friends, our engineers over at WCV. Uh, I'm your host and producer, uh, engineer for the evening, Tariq Alameen. Your executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. Uh, the thoughts uh, and views expressed by the host and guests are theirs and not to be taken as the views of Sound Vision uh, Incorporated. Um, 
Well, we look forward to talking to you on the next edition of Radio Islam. And we are going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.